Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu from the podcast team at Qalam. We wanted to wish you a very blessed Ramadan. This month you can expect daily uploads that will include reflections, khatiras and khutbas all from our new campus Alhamdulillah. If you benefit from this content, please give generously at supportqalam.com. 100% of your donations goes towards the means of providing accessible Islamic knowledge to people around the world. Jazakumullah khairan for listening. Assalamu alaikum everybody. Welcome home. Happy to have everybody. Uh, to me, it's literally welcome home. I came home this morning. I was in Vancouver, not for vacation, for work. Um, but I, um, alhamdulillah, very happy to be here. Kind of running on fumes, but um, uh, you know, hard work always, obviously, gives me energy. Alhamdulillah. So we are on the third, uh, the third section of this hadith. So we've been going over through the month of Ramadan. This hadith that narrated that the Prophet ﷺ said that, uh, well, a lot of things, but part of that he mentioned, that in Ramadan, um, there are uh, three different components of Ramadan. So the hadith narrated by Salman al-Farisi, where the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, he mentions that this is a great month, it's a blessed month, it's a month in which there's more reward in one night than any other night, right? More than a thousand months, Laylatul Qadr, which is coming up, may Allah Ta'ala allow us to see it and to take advantage of it. And then the Prophet Sallallahu mentions that, you know, all these different virtues, that if you perform an obligation in this month, it's greater than any other obligation out the rest of the year, that this is a month of patience, and if you show patience, your reward is Jannah, that it's a month of sympathy, and if you have sympathy, your reward is Jannah, it's a month of risk. So if you are seeking risk from Allah, don't be stingy with your charity because it's a month of provision. Um, and so, and then there's the portion in which the Prophet ﷺ mentions that on the first, the first 10 days of this month are the days of mercy. And the second 10 days of this month are categorized as the days of forgiveness. And the third, as he says, is that these are the days of salvation or emancipation from the hellfire. So, this is, the, this is going to be the topic of our conversation tonight. What does it mean for a person to achieve salvation from the hellfire? To get emancipated from uh, this position? And this is something that obviously, it's not always the most comfortable of conversations. Because in order for us to understand the value of being saved from danger, then we have to acknowledge that there's danger to begin with. Many of us, one of, the, one of the ways in which we negotiate our comfort or discomfort with the lifestyles that we live is we sort of try to remove or mute any recognition or any reminder that the existence of hell is real. And this is something that, again, it's like a fight or flight mechanism within us. We don't want to necessarily have to think about it all the time. It's the same story with death, right? When someone thinks about death, it's very uncomfortable. You know, if, if, if I did a heart work session on marriage, three million people would show up to Dallas, Texas, right? If I did a heart work session on death, I don't know if we'd get that many people, right? Why is one topic more popular than the other? Well, because the idea of you know, marriage or living your life and being able to you know, attain new uh, milestones in life and enjoy yourself, it's much more of a lighthearted topic than a topic like death or than a topic like the hellfire. So this is something that we have to understand and acknowledge, right? Now, why does the hellfire have to exist? This is a theological question. If God is so forgiving and God is so merciful, 
then why is there a necessity for something like punishment in the afterlife to even have to exist? Anyone? Accountability. Accountability. What do you mean by that? Okay, very good. Thank you for being honest. <laughs> like, I'm not going to stop myself from doing something bad if I'm not going to be held accountable for it. Okay? We all remember those college classes where the professor didn't count attendance. Or we don't remember them, if you know what I mean, right? <laughs> like, we all know what happens to our, our you know, our, our, our morale, or our, our, you know, our, our work ethic, when something doesn't have a, me a mechanism of accountability. Okay? If you knew that you were never going to get fired from your job, no matter how you performed or how you worked, you know, you probably wouldn't be so afraid to be late once in a while or every day or not do as good of a job as you could, right? Or you wouldn't have the motivation to like get out of bed as you work from home. All these things are built upon the precipice of the idea of accountability, okay? And we live this and we understand it and we actually accept it every day. How many of us slow down when we drive by a police officer? even if we're already going to speed limit, okay? Or how many of us, when we see that there's a red light you know, a speed camera, that we make sure that we stop, and it's like still green, and we're like stopped, right? People behind us are honking, we're like, no, I'm not getting a ticket. Why? Because the fear of accountability is so great that it changes behavior, okay? So although hellfire is not something that is, you know, it's not lighthearted, it's not necessarily something pleasurable to speak about or to think about, it is somewhat of a necessity. For us to have to have a conversation once in a while, okay? The Prophet Muhammad taught us that even though the hellfire does exist, you shouldn't overexert people by talking about it all the time, but you do need to bring it up. We do need to remind ourselves that it exists. And in this context, we're not talking about the hellfire for the sake of hellfire, right? I'm not going to tell you, you know, the different descriptions of it, how big it is, the punishments, etc. Those are all maybe from a different, uh, you know, series on the afterlife or whatnot. This topic is about how this month in particular is the month in which more people annually have their record and their slate wiped clean in order for them to be emancipated and freed from the hellfire than any other month. So even though it's a heavy topic, it's ultimately a very positive conversation, okay? That in these last 10 nights, we're on night number 17 tonight, right? Yeah, no, 18, sorry, we're entering night 18. Night's first, okay? Guys, we, we get that, right? Night's first, that's why you fast the last day you don't pray, because it ends on a day. So we're entering into night number 18. So that means that the last 10 nights are gonna uh, start when? The? Of April, okay. Thank you, by the way, because I don't know, because I'm like, I, I wasn't, it wasn't like a question where I was rhetorically asking, I genuinely was asking you, when are they gonna start? Because Ramadan, everything just kind of blends together. So the 21st of April. So in these last 10 nights, we know that the, 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 the night of power, the Atul Qadr is found, and we know that this is a, a time in which we should exert ourselves and, and try our best to make sure that we catch it. People start to look for signs, right? They start to look for, you know, uh, uh, all the different uh, indications that the Prophet Sallallahu gave of the Atul Qadr. Everyone all of a sudden starts becoming expert meteorologists because some of the signs have to do with like a layer of fog in the morning and a sunrise that has no rays, right? It's like a sun that's not like piercing, but it's there. Um, and that there's a little bit of dew in the morning. So you have people outside just like collecting all these, you know, different uh, um, measurements and stuff like that. But that's not the purpose, right? The purpose of, of Laylatul Qadr 
is not so that you can absolutely definitively say like, I, I know it, I know what it was. The purpose of this incredible, immense night is to show you the value of these last 10 nights. Because if, if the Prophet wanted to, or if Allah wanted the Prophet to, then this night could have been known just like the day of Arafah is known. Very easily. The day of Arafah, which is the greatest day in the Islamic calendar, is known to everybody. We don't have to look for it. We know. But the night of Qadr, the night of power, is not known in an, in an attempt to force everybody to take these last 10 nights very seriously. And some scholars even said that the first 20 nights of Ramadan are just like your dress rehearsal. It's like your tryouts. The first 20 nights, everything that we're doing is to prime us to be ready so that for the last 10 nights, we're not, we're not stumbling over ourselves. right? We're not kind of catching ourselves. And this is the dip that we're in right now. How many of you started Ramadan like really up high? Anybody? MashaAllah. You're not bragging. How many of you guys were excited for it? Right? And you promised yourself no iftar parties. I'm not going to be late. I'm going to pray this in the masjid. I'm going to do this in the masjid. And then you made it. Like first, first few days, you're like killing it, mashallah. And then middle of Ramadan, you got that nice little dip. Right? Where you're like, you know, I heard Tawrah Weeks not even far. Someone said that, right? Somewhere. Wasn't the scholar said that? You know, you're like, isn't that hadith or something? And you're like, you know, we can just pray Isha and Jama'ah anywhere, right? The whole earth is a masjid. Didn't God say that somewhere? <laughs> if it's our party, it's not a party. Put away the streamers. Let's just break it fast together, right? And we start to make these concessions for ourselves because we, we lost stamina, right? We lost focus. So the last 10 nights come back with this power, with this presence to revive the focus within us. Okay, and I'm so happy that we had a hard work a couple days beforehand so that we could use this for this conversation, inshallah. So in these last 10 nights, I wanted to share with you guys, you know, there's, um, there's something particularly beautiful about these last 10 nights and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promises that people will be saved from the hellfire. Meaning what? That a person very well, by the virtue of their deeds or their mistakes, could have been destined for punishment. And because they spent just one moment with Allah, doing the right thing, or one moment making the right choice or choosing the right action, course of action, that this person then changes their destiny. Okay, they change their trajectory. And there's a hadith that shows up in the commentary that I wanted to share with you. How many of you guys have ever heard of the hadith of the seven who will be under the shade of Allah's throne on the Day of Judgment? So there's a hadith in which the Prophet Sallallahu he describes, and he says that there are seven people, that Allah will shade these people on the Day of Judgment. And this day, the Day of Judgment, is an incredibly intense day, right? Think of the most anxious and nervous and most high stakes moment that you could ever experience in your entire life. And the Day of Judgment is that times a million. And on the Day of Judgment, one of the circumstances that's described is that there will be this intense burning hot sun that the sun will be so hot, it will be so fiery, that everybody will start to sweat profusely. Not only out of their anxiety and their nervousness, but out of the circumstance of the sun that's there. And if you've ever been, I mean like Texas, right? July, everyone, what happens in Texas in July? People just kind of start to, you know, recluse and go back into their homes and 
nobody really wants to go. If I asked everyone to come out for a barbecue in Texas in July, they're like, are you barbecuing us? Or like, what do you want to barbecue? People leave, right? I'll never forget Hajj um, in Hajj three years ago. I think it was 2018, 2019. Um, it's in the middle of the summer, okay? And it's super hot. Like we're talking in the middle of the day. It's, it feels like it's 120, 125. Like that's what it feels like. Especially if you walk outside on the road, it's like super, super hot, subhanAllah. And if you look out on the day of Friday, Jumu'ah in, in, in the Muslim majority land is not like Jumu'ah here. Jumu'ah here, you're like, what time is Jumu'ah? It's like 1.30, you're like, no, 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 the prayer, not the khutbah, right? You're like, oh, the khutbah is at 1.30, the, the prayer is at two. So people stroll in at 1.59, right? And they're like, alhamdulillah, Jumu'ah Mubarak to me. All right, may Allah, may Allah rectify us. So in, in, in places where you know, the, the, the massages get full, full very quickly. People show up very early. And if you want to pray in the Masjid Haram in Mecca, you have to get there hours early. We're talking like if Jumu'ah is at 12.30 or 1, you have to get there at like 9.30 or 10. If you want to pray inside. If you want to pray outside and melt, right, and say goodbye to your loved ones, then you can do that. But it's interesting because those who are late, there are these pockets of shade. And it's so amazing. When you look out from like very high in, in, the, in the buildings behind the masjid and you see the sun starting to come up, you start to see people and their outline of seating is only outlined by where there is shade. So if there's sun, there's no one there. And if there's shade, there's like 3,000 people occupying that small area and they're packed together because the shade on that day is such a relief. And the difference in temperature that you feel when you're in the sun versus the shade, it's indescribable. It almost feels like two different climates. So Allah here is offering on this day where the sun is gonna be worse than any other day, like the hottest you've ever thought of, it's a million times that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is offering his shade to seven types of people. Now I know many of us here are like, okay, I can already tell you who they are. The Hafiz Quran, right? The one who doesn't DM. The Jokes, okay, the the one who donates a million dollars to the masjid, the one who fasts every Monday and Thursday, the one who this 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 this. That's not the categories. Although her father got really nervous, right? You're like, I swear to God, I don't even add Instagram. Okay, mashallah. No, none of that. I know we have none of that here. Alhamdulillah. Okay, all right. So the seven that we expect to hear are actually not the seven that the Prophet Sallallahu tells us. And this is what I love about Islam. The Prophet ﷺ, he expands spirituality to make it accessible by so many different types of people. It's not just like one type. You know, like you look at somebody and you assume automatically they're religious or they're not. Because of what? What do we look at? Their appearance, their dress, their clothes, right? To what degree, like how long their beard is? Is it a hipster beard? Is it a sunnah beard? Like, there's that weird gray area in between, okay? Um, Actually, I went to a barber, a Lebanese barber, when I was in Canada to get cleaned up because I was starting to look like Hagrid. And he was like, he was like, what kind of beard do you want? And then he was kind of like sizing it up and I could see that he was going to take a lot, lot off. And I said, no, I'm Iman. He's like, okay, right? <laughs> He's like, I was about to give you the haram haircut, right? You know, uh, or I couldn't, I couldn't FaceTime my mom for a couple weeks until things grew back. So we start to size people up based on their appearances. But every single deed that the Prophet ﷺ here says will give someone comfort on the Day of Judgment is a deed 
that is something that is incredibly private. It's hidden to them. And this is, again, a moment where we understand those people who will be emancipated from the hellfire, they don't necessarily always have to look the part. It's not that you're going to be able to pick them out from a crowd. Right? And on the opposite side, we learn in another narration that's authentic in Sayyid Bukhari, that the first people to go to hellfire, some of them will be the people, may Allah Ta'ala protect us, that we would have assumed would have been the first people in the paradise. The reciter, the martyr, the scholar, all three of them the, of the first to enter hellfire. And when asked why, when asked about their deeds, they will say, we did this for you, Ya Allah, and then they'll be told, no, you didn't. You did it so that people would celebrate your accomplishment. You sought knowledge so that people would say, you're so knowledgeable. You gave money so that people would say, you're so generous. You fought and defended your community so that what? People would say how brave you were. But you didn't do it for the sake of Allah. So let's go through these seven, inshallah, quickly, so we can understand. And again, you don't have to be all seven. If you are, mashallah, shalash, right? But if you're not, one is someone that will qualify. The first, he says, is a just ruler. A ruler who is just, who's fair. Now, many of us here are like, okay, well, I'm automatically disqualified. Uh, you know, you have one person here who aspires to run for Senate, and that's it. But everyone else is like, you know, lawyer, you know, doctor, that's it. I can't. Here it's interesting, because all the commentaries talk about, the, the most obvious is what? Yes, people who have legitimate authority over another people, right? Like they're like the sovereign authority over others. Then being just for them is almost like an act of divine mercy. Why? Why is it so difficult for rulers to be just? You guys tell me. It's easy to be greedy. It's absolutely easy to be greedy. When you are in a position of power and people are underneath you, and you don't answer to anybody, but they answer to you, the ability to maintain justice within yourself in that moment is truly pi pi like it's true piety. Okay? So many of us are thinking to ourselves, when we read this, we're like, oh man, we start naming all these like unjust ex you know, uh, uh, examples that we can think of. But some of the commentators on this narration, they said something really beautiful. They said, everyone is a ruler. And the Prophet ﷺ proved this. He said, all of you are shepherds. Every single one. And every single one of you, you are all going to be what? Asked. On your flock. Okay? So who are you in charge of? Anyone who wants to share? Who are you in charge of in your life? Who looks up to you as an authority? Who are you the one that has to take care of that person? Okay, so yeah, the low-hanging fruit, parents of their kids. Right? But how many of you have like younger siblings? Or maybe you have younger cousins? Or maybe you have friends, or maybe you're at a position in your job where you are a supervisor over people. Like you are the one that's in charge. Or it doesn't have to be universal or eternal. It can even mean temporary. What, what, how many of you have ever been in charge of anything in your life? Right? In those moments, who were you? When you had the power, when you had the authority, when you were the one calling the shots, what kind of person did you become? This is what this is describing. Some people, when they're given authority, it corrupts them, right? Famous saying. It was Caesar, right? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I make that up. Okay, anyways. A bunch of pre-med students. Never mind. Okay, English major, pre-med students. All right, so 
It's, it's, it's absolutely accurate, subhanAllah. And this is why even Imam al-Ghazali, very interesting, he wrote about how people should not spend time with rulers or watching or, or like learning about rulers. Don't spend time with the Sultan, he said. Especially for people of the, of the community, like the religious and the, and, and the knowledgeable. But he said there's no benefit for anybody. There's no benefit to spend time with people who are in ruling position because why? Their, their concessions that they get and that they give to themselves, it's dangerous for the ethic and the virtue of an individual. So what does this mean? It means we have to check ourselves. When we watch or when we read or listen to anything about how people who were in positions of leadership abuse that power and it's glorified or it's talked about in a way that's almost like, right? It's, it's, it's brought onto the position of, of high status. We have to be careful to make sure that we're not gonna become that person. We have to make sure that we're not that person. This is why even in dealings, like in business dealings, when you have the upper hand, how do you act? There's that TikTok uh, uh, trend about landlords, right? How landlords, they prepare their unit for the next tenant to come in. And there's like random stuff, like there's like empty, you know, uh, um, plates in the sink and they just like kind of toss it aside or they paint over like a, a dead bug and they're like, oh, it's ready to go, right? When you're in a position, subhanAllah, when you're in a position, when you have the leverage, when you have it, what kind of person do you become? Are you super cutthroat, have no mercy, have no ability to empathize whatsoever? Because that's not prophetic. The Prophet ﷺ, to the same people that killed his family, his friends, his companions, his followers, the same people that made his life miserable for two decades, when he comes back to Mecca and he opens the city so that Muslims can come and visit the Kaaba and make Umrah and Hajj, he asks everybody. He walks up to the city and they're all there. These are all the same people that in the battles of Badr and Uhud and Khandaq and all these different, they were the ones that if they had a shot at him, they would have killed him. And some of them tried. And they asked him, he asked them, how do you think today is gonna go down? And they said, you are, you know, what are you supposed to say? They said, you are the most, you are such a generous person, the son of generous and noble people. You would never do anything to hurt us. Because at that point, what happened? Quraysh went from here to here, and the Muslims went from here to here. So who's talking with leverage now? The Prophet's also them. And he looks at them, and he says this phrase, لا تثريب عليكم اليوم. It's the same phrase that Yusuf said to his brothers when he became king. No blame on you today. I'm not going to stand here and execute all of you and make, a, and make a lesson out of this. I'm not going to put you all in prisons that are horrific, that will make you want to end your life. I'm not going to do that. Now that I have the power, I'm going to demonstrate to you what you couldn't demonstrate to me when you had power. Right? And a lot of us, the appetite for revenge, the appetite, the anger that's there, if I was in the position to do that, then I would. That's also not a good sign. So ask yourself, and many of us would say, oh, if I were in a position like this, I would be amazing. If I were the president of a country, right? If I were prime minister of Pakistan, yeah. right? <laughs> Things would be great, you know what I mean? Such an easy, such an easy 
such an easy thing to speculate about. But you have no idea about your own weaknesses until, you're, until the pressure is put on you, right? You don't know if there's a leak until what? Until there's pressure put on. You don't know about your weaknesses until there's pressure put on you. So when you look at people who are in positions of leadership, the first thing you do is you make dua that Allah Ta'ala help them. The second thing you do is you ask Allah never to test you like that. Because you have no idea what faults in your character become apparent when you have the responsibility of people on you. Okay? So he says, number one, the just ruler. Number two, the young person who grew up in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This person will be covered by the shade of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on his throne on the day of judgment. The young person who spent their time. And this is also a very interesting category because what does this mean? What's the norm for young people? Huh? YOLO, very good, right? Well, not good, but that's, you're right, you're accurate. YOLO, the, the norm for young people is not to spend their time in the worship of God. And I, I remember as a young person, I remember, and you should remember too, the conversations about time and spending time, typically it wasn't spent with friends talking about worship, talking about becoming closer to Allah. The conversations were always about something else and then religion was something that was injected or that was, you know, it was a reality. Like, okay, it's almost like a speed bump. Like you're driving on a road and I have to slow down for the speed bump, right? I'm living my life, I have to slow down so I can pray. It, it, it was never, as a young person, the idea, oh yes, I'm excited to do this and that. And it typically also wasn't celebrated, okay? So many of us went through that. And many of us found our faith or are finding our faith when? Well into adulthood. Which is okay. It's not a problem. Alhamdulillah. Better late than never. But many of us, how many of you started really organically practicing your own Islam after your 20s? Anybody? Like after college. How many of you, the MSA helped you a lot? Oh, wow. You're like, no, no, no. You're like way after the MSA, right? Okay. That's something that I find to be, when I travel the country and talk to people, I oftentimes find that the most active engagement for people is throughout college, after college. But before then, it's more of like a parental burden, something that's put on us. So the Prophet Sallallahu here is saying what? That for young people to find themselves naturally in the company or the environment where they worship Allah Subh'anaHu Wa that is something that will set their life on a trajectory as such that will guarantee them on the day of judgment the most important position that they can have, right? And this is the second category. The third is one whose heart is attached to the masjid. How many of you love the masjid? Anybody? Just a peaceful place. I know it's kind of, everyone's kind of in that post, that iftar love, right? I promise you the food's on its way, inshallah. Okay? The next one, the one who's attached to the masjid, their heart is attached to the masjid. That when you see a masjid, when you're able to go there, your heart yearns for you to be able to do that. Instead of always avoiding the masjid, there's like always this deep emotional attachment that when you walk into it, you feel this level of tranquility, this level of sakina. This is something that Ramadan gives us, right? And if you'll notice, Ramadan is giving us all of these characteristics. That was kind of the spoiler for the end. But you'll notice Ramadan gives us a chance at all these characteristics. We have a relationship. We come to the masjid more Ramadan than we come out the entire year, right? 30 times in 30 days, if you come even for Isha or even for Iftar, let's say even you come 20 times in 30 days. That's, that's the highest concentration of masjid going that most Muslims have in their life. And then we notice what? 
What do you notice about Ramadan? Your spirituality increases, your, self, your self-discipline increases, your taqwa increases, your language gets better, your thoughts get better, right? It doesn't mean that you become perfect, but all these things start to improve. And then at the end of the month, we're like, it's a miracle. Well, it is a miracle, but guess what? The miracle had a recipe and you were doing it the whole time. What happens to a person when they regiment the masjid as part of their life? What happens to a person when they do that? When they make sure that every night, like, you know, everyone talks about, oh, what's the plan? What's the post move? Are you going to be that person after Ramadan? Hey, what's the post move? You're like, Isha. And then you have a live for two hours. Let's do this, right? No, nobody is going to have the, the courage to do that because it's seen as a Ramadan only thing. But the tragedy, subhanAllah, and I'll never forget when my teacher, Sheikh Hassan, he said this. He said, the tragedy about the masjid in Ramadan is that for 30 days, it's like the most popular person in Ramadan. The masjid's like popping off, right? Then he says on the Eid, it's like the loneliest person. It's almost like as soon as Ramadan leaves, like we're like, all right, masjid, see you next year. And the problem is that that's not a person whose heart is attached to the mosque. That's not. We, call, we would call that a fair-weather friend. But would you want to be friends with somebody like that? You were talking for 30 days, and then like, <laughs> on the 31st, or like, see you next year? No, no one, would want, no one would want to have that relationship with anybody. So the masjid deserves better from us. The masjid deserves better from us. And if we come to expect, almost like an entitled way, like, oh Allah, like, I want to have this spiritual strength, I want to have this ability, we have to ask ourselves one question. What is my relationship with the community? What is my relationship with the house of Allah? Is it even there? If it's not there, then there's going to be issues. Okay? The next one, number four, two people who love each other, meet each other, and depart from each other only for the sake of Allah. Two people, so friends, who come together, they, uh, they, they love one another for the sake of Allah, they come together, and they separate only for the sake of Allah. All right, what does this mean? If I told you I love you for the sake of Allah, what am I saying? Is it an insult? If I'm like, Wallahi, I love you only for the sake of Allah. <laughs> Otherwise, I would hate your guts. Is that what I'm saying? What does it mean when I say that? It's a really, it's kind of a, it's, it's a tough concept to translate. When a person says, I love you only for the sake of Allah. Because it seems insulting. Yeah, Bushra. Oh, no, nice. Aliyub, I like that. You're like, redirect. Yes. You're seeing that person as your Jannah buddy. Uh-huh. MashaAllah. What do you mean by that? Like, um, because like the person you cheat off of in school to get good grades? <laughs> oh, no, I'm joking. What do you mean? Okay. How you said, like, people in college uh, do their life and then stop, pray, and then complete their life? No, it's the opposite. Mm. So you're always, like, having enjoyment of everything because of, uh, you guys are always, like, for example, living your life, but then, like, when it's time to pray, or it's time to fast, or it's time to do God, you're doing it with, like, uh, ultimate joy. 
How many of you have a friendship like this? Where you're... <laughs> you have a friendship where you're the basis of your friendship. Is, it's not that you don't like each other for other reasons. But it's that your priority is that you admire this person's dedication to their faith. You guys have that? And, and in Ramadan, you start to discover these people. So like you'll start to make plans. You guys have masjid crews? Anyone have like a masjid crew? Like the crew that's like, like I'll tell you, like there's a, there's a group of guys that I play basketball with and we play basketball, alhamdulillah, throughout the year. And our cutoff date, the only 10 days that we block out is what? The last 10 nights. Because we usually play ball at, at, you know, like 11 p.m. So we cut it out. We say, no, there's no basketball. And so th there's like a panic right now because again, it's coming up on the 21st. So they're like, how many sessions can we get in before the last 10 nights? What does that mean? We love each other because we see each other. We play basketball once a week together. You know, we're all fathers. Like we talk about being, you know, like dads and all that kind of stuff. But the, the, the priority and the nature of our relationship is that it's built upon what? We all prioritize the same things. So when it comes to the last 10 nights, no one even like suggested. Like, hey, you know what? Why don't we... You know, isn't the body also in the manna? Why don't we take care of ourselves for 30 minutes? Like, you know, this and that. They said, no, man, last 10 nights is prime time. No one should even imagine that we're going to go and do something as, as mundane as playing basketball when it could be the night of power, right? So there are these relationships that you have. And this is very important, by the way. I'm going to say something. It's going to kind of be very awkward. I hope that people don't lose friends. It's okay to matriculate and outgrow certain relationships in your life. In fact, it's normal. It doesn't mean that you hate anybody. And you should do it with grace. You should do it with grace, okay? But if you have a priority in your life, if you know that something is important to you, and you're noticing that your priorities are not being mirrored back to you in your relationships, and that you're usually the one that, that initiates that priority, then you need to, okay, the best case scenario is not to cut these people off. Like, I'm sorry, you know, uh, as of today, we'll no longer be friends. You know, please don't call me. You know, I've already unfollowed you on social media. That's not necessary. And in fact, by the way, when people do that kind of stuff, and they do that stuff, and I don't like it. When people do that, it's often a vain attempt at spirituality. Did you ever see the Prophet Sosan do that? Was anyone better than him in religion? <laughs> Everyone's like, oh, don't be friends with people who aren't as good. Okay. The Prophet had no competition in his spiritual state. There was no one even close. Okay. And did you ever see him talking to somebody saying, I can't be friends with you because you are not as good of a Muslim as I am? In fact, some of those who were the closest to him had the greatest struggles in their Islam. One of the ones, his nickname was Himar, which means donkey, right? But he was a companion that used to make the Prophet laugh. He used to make him laugh. And he enjoyed his company. He was a funny guy, but he struggled with alcohol. He used to drink and he, had a, he, he was addicted. He had trouble kicking the habit. But he never abandoned this guy. He never told him like, you know what, Himar, <laughs> it sounds weird. <laughs> You know what, like, I love you, but like, you know, you're funny, but like, you just, you know, he never did that. Now, I'm not saying that 
you should, you know, be like, you know what, for the sake of Allah, let's go to Thirsty Thursdays and let, you know, let's, let's hit it up, it's two for one, you know, whatever. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, as a friend and as a community, you have to be able to be multifaceted enough to have relationships where you can allow the benefit that people give you in many different scenarios and be, benefic be beneficial to others as well. So it might mean that, yeah, what someone does on a Friday night is not your priority. That's not what you want to do. But can you have coffee with them Saturday morning? Can you, can you meet up with them for lunch during the work week? Yeah, absolutely. Can you, can you go to Juma together? Yeah, definitely. Just because they do something one night a week that you don't like, doesn't mean that you have to proclaim this person as like the, the, the greatest sinner in the ummah, you know what I mean? Don't, don't judge others because they sin differently than you. It's ajeeb. We all sin. And if I have the audacity and the courage and the arrogance to look at somebody and say, you're not good enough to share space with me. Because look at the things you do. And then meanwhile, in the privacy of my home or in the privacy of my friends group, I do the same thing that if people saw, they'd be like, look at you. Don't be like that. The ummah was not built upon people condescending on one another. The ummah was built upon what? Bashiru wala tunafiru. Yassiru wala tu'asiru. The Prophet ﷺ gave beautiful advice. Bashiru wala tunafiru. Means what? Give good news to people. Wabashiru alladina amanu wa amilu salihat. Anna lahum aljanna. Right? The, in the Quran, one of the first commands, Allah Ta'ala tells us, give good news to people. Sometimes we hold back good news. Someone does something good and we're like, you know? Don't, this morning, oh my God, it's the funniest thing. I hope he's not watching. This morning I met a brother, it's so funny. Can I share your story? Okay, it's really, really funny, right? Okay, let me give you a context, okay? I am not a sheikh. Let me just put that out there. Linguistically, I'm not old. I am actually, I'm 34. Linguistically, I'm not old. And also, technically, in my Islamic studies, I'm, I'm always studying, so I'm not a sheikh. So, sheikh is not an appropriate title for me, okay? Right? Get, got it? We good on that? Thumbs up? Okay, thumbs up. You're too tired even thumbs up. You're like, brother. <laughs> you're like, can't you pray with your eyes blinking if you're too exhausted? Okay. So look. So I have no delusion about me being a, a sheikh or anything like that. None whatsoever. I'm just a student of knowledge, trying and helping. I do, I do book reports. I do fancy book reports for people. Okay? However, out of etiquette, there are people who are much senior knowledge to me than I will ever be okay, who refuse to call me anything but sheikh. You know what I'm talking about? Like really knowledgeable scholars in their 60s, and when they greet me, they're like, sheikh, it's such an honor. Oh my God, your hand is so heavy from your ilm. And I'm like, what are you saying? Because <laughs> you know, like with Arabs, especially, they're very like overly formal, right? Oh my goodness, you bring light to our city. If you leave, then it's dark. Please stay, you know, like all that. This is like the nature of people, right? Their tongue is sweet. <laughs> I'm just laughing. Honestly, it's really funny. So, so, and, and maybe, maybe this, this is a good reason, okay? So again, I have no delusion about my status, but then there are people, and out of courtesy, right? Like when I, when I meet someone, if I met a young, like let's say like a young, a young kid came up to me today and was like 12 years old or whatever, and they're like, I want to be, a, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an imam or I want to be a, you know, I want to work in tech and make more than everybody. Um, or I want to do this. Would it, would it behoove me for some reason to be like, you're not even close. 
right? Like, what, what kind of thing would I gain from that? You know what I mean? I remember I met Tiger Woods once when I was a kid. Because I grew up playing golf, because obviously. So, I met him once, and I remember, I was like, a, I was a little kid, I was like nine. And I was like, man, and I, what do you say to someone as good as Tiger Woods? So I was like, I was like, man, Tiger, you're really good. You know? That's a stupid thing to say in retrospect. But he says, he looks at me dead in the eyes, and he says, yeah, I practice a lot more than you do. And I was like, yeah, I was so upset. I was like, why would you say that to a child? What is inside of you that, that motivates you to speak so harshly to somebody, right? So, this morning, I met somebody, and there was a couple guys who were like, Salam alaykum, Sheikh, Salam alaykum, Sheikh, because they were dropping out the airport. And the third guy, I love, wallahi, I love him. Allah sent him to me to humble me. He goes, Salam alaykum. And then he goes, <laughs> I goes, I'm not going to call you a Sheikh because you're really not one. <laughs> wallahi, I laughed. I was dying. I was like, bro, true. Like, I, you got to give me that L. Just let me take this L, you know, put it right here on my chest. Right? But I thought to myself, subhanAllah, sometimes, what is it within us that is so desperate to pull people down? What is it? If somebody does something right or good, there's no harm in praising them and connecting it to Allah. MashaAllah, it's amazing that Allah has given you the tawfiq to come to the masjid today. It's so simple, but there is this hyper fear of like, I don't want to, I don't want to give this person any hype. I don't want to prop them up whatsoever. No, man, this is for a specific circumstance of if a person is like a narcissist and they have that tendency to like feed off of this stuff, then you cut. Then the Prophet said, "Cut it," because you don't want to feed into that narcissism. But if a person is just a general person and they walk in to the masjid for Jum'ah. What, what do we say usually if we see someone we haven't seen in a long time? Wow! What's the occasion? Is it your, is it your nikah today? Like, why are you here? It's, the condescension is so palpable. Instead of it being what? MashaAllah! Awesome to see you. Come here, come here. Let me show you some... Like, you know what I mean? Like, encouraging instead of discouraging. Okay? So, what this is to say is that your friend's circle should not be clones of you. Your friend's circle, the community will not be clones of you. The community will not be clones of you. If you can only be friends with people just like you, mashallah, have fun being alone. Because the community of the Prophet was full of scholars and non-scholars. It was full of people who worked in the market and people who studied full-time. It was full of people who struggled with sins and those who couldn't even imagine committing the very same sins as the person who sat next to them committed. And they somehow were able to stand up and say, Allahu Akbar, and pray together. Somehow. We have to ask ourselves, what kind of community are we creating if we're making this Puritan threshold only for a certain amount? We ask Allah to give us tawfiq. So two people who come together and they love each other only for the sake of Allah, which means what? The priority that they have is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's sake. The next is a person who is tempted by a beautiful person of the opposite gender, and they reject them, saying that I fear Allah. Now this is something, obviously the story of Yusuf comes to mind, right? The idea of being tempted by desire is something that is very real. This hadith is speaking in the more physical sense, 
But we can very easily connect this to the idea of the toxic desire that is pervasive throughout the internet on social media. Pornography and engaging in that kind of content very much fits within the realm of this hadith. Maybe not literally, but in the ballpark. Which is what? Many of us, every day, are offered things that our nafs and our eyes desire. And it is up to us to say what? I fear Allah in that moment. It is up to us. Right? And it might, it might look... It might look, honestly, very synthetic at the moment. I remember there was that one Muslim boxer or somebody that was being given an award, and the woman giving the award was not dressed appropriately, and he, like, took his kufi off his head and covered his eyes. And everyone, like, you know, just like we do, like, ha-ha, that's hilarious. But it, it is hilarious, but it's more heartwarming. It's wholesome. Why? Because you see somebody that's willing to go to whatever lengths they have to go to to protect their heart. Because they know. If it means turning off the TV because you know that the, the thing that's on there is not good, like fast forwarding, looking away, all that, sure, it's fine. But how valuable is this thing inside your chest, man? How valuable is this qalb? And you're willing to let a few moments or a minute or whatever be the thing that distracts your heart from Allah. Why? Because of the body, the desire of the body. So that's another person. Then there's one who spends in charity in such a way that they hide it from their right hand, or their right hand is hiding it, so that their left hand doesn't know what they're giving. Right? I know this sounds kind of weird. It doesn't mean that you kind of reach in with your pocket and don't look at it, and the left hand, no. What it means is, you're so secretive with your charity, that there is no way that anyone else knows, first and foremost. And secondly, it's almost like as soon as you've done it, you've forgotten about it. Your charity is so sincere, it's not performative in the least bit. And then the last, he says, is the one who remembers Allah in private when they're by themselves. And in that moment of remembrance, whether it's happiness or fear, whether it's rejoicing or sorrow, whether it's regret, whatever it is, they start to feel their eyes well up with tears. Now, many of us, this is a, this is a status that is, is difficult to cry in front of Allah. Many of us don't even know what it's like to cry in general. You want to know the secret to crying? The heart has to cry before the eyes can cry. The heart has to feel in order for the eyes to express. Because everything our body does is just what the heart is feeling. If I haven't thought about my relationship with Allah enough, and to me it's just like a formal thing, Allah is just my supervisor, my boss, just check in, check out. Those tears will never come. But if I regiment with my life daily, a time where I think to Allah, remember the four things? Your greatest, what? The things you most appreciate, the things you most regret, your greatest hopes and your greatest fears. Think about those four things with Allah. If I spend every day, just a few moments, at the end of my day, talking to Allah about those four things, I promise you, I promise you that the tears will come. And subhanAllah, there's a beautiful narration about tears that I'll share with you before we make du'a and break our fast. The Prophet said that there are some things that the person can do that no matter what else they did in their life, hellfire is forbidden from touching their skin. He has forbidden hellfire from touching their skin. You wanna know what they are? He said, and they all have to do with the eye. He said, number one, any skin that a tear has touched, and that tear is somehow connected to Allah. Any, any skin at all that a tear has touched, 
Hellfire is forbidden from touching it. That's why you see some people do what when they finish their draw? What do they do? You'll see that, and they'll start wiping their skin. Look, man, I'm not hating on that. Like, do, do what you gotta do. And you're like, sorry, Hellfire, you're not touching this, right? Left elbow covered, right? Like, right wrist covered. Do what you have to do. The Hellfire is forbidden from the eye that is cautious in the way of Allah. Meaning what? It will never touch the person that watches their gaze. And it is forbidden from the eye that lowers its gaze from that which they know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden. 